Our scripture lesson this morning, friends, does in fact not come from the book of Luke. I had a change of heart. Instead, it comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. I'm sorry, 13 through 25. And so I invite you to hear these words. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child in order to destroy him. So Joseph got up. He took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. It was to fulfill what had been spoken out by the Lord through the prophet, that out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, willing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled, because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. He went away. And after being warmed in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. The season between Christmas and New Year's is always such a strange one. Time just doesn't feel like it actually exists. This year has felt like it flew by and somehow the past week felt like the longest and shortest week of the year at the exact same time. Christmas happens, we celebrate it one day of the year but in truth, Christmas is 12 days long. Earlier this week, I was doing what I do a lot of times in the morning, which is lay in bed and read things on my phone so I don't have to actually get out of bed. And I fell down in a hole on the internet, which is dangerous, but it was about why Christmas went from a 12-day celebration to a one-day celebration. And it was fascinating because we didn't do it for any good theological reason. We didn't do it 
because we needed less Christmas. In fact, it was something that was pushed by clergy and other authorities themselves because people used to just rage for 12 straight days. Christmas was a time when the wealthy would open up their homes, when food and alcohol and all sorts of other things would be bountiful. It was this season of celebration and sin. And so clergy and others pushed for it to move to a single day celebration instead of being 12 straight days of what was considered blasphemy. It's always funny to me how the church changes itself, not for theological reasons, but because we don't like what church people are doing. The truth is that while the world has moved beyond Christmas, we're still in the season of Christmas. I think this is day seven of Christmas. Christ is here. He is born. And this is a season that I personally just love. It's this strange limbo where we know Christ is in the world. The anticipation of his birth has passed. He's here. And while he's here, he hasn't really done anything yet. So many times because of the calendar of the church, we think it goes from Jesus being born to Jesus being a 33-year-old man beginning ministry. But there's a time in between that, friends. And that time gets reflected in this very short 12 days where we sit in this moment of Christ being here and Christ not really doing anything yet. Jesus's life in this season is not something we spend a lot of time on. Frankly, scripture doesn't tell us much about it. We don't get a lot of baby Jesus or toddler Jesus. We get one story about teenage Jesus. He's not an adult yet. He's not the mighty healer. He's not the calmer of storms or the flipper of tables. Jesus is a child, a baby at his mother's breast. He's not fully grown yet. And sometimes we forget to sit in the fact that Jesus himself wasn't born fully adult that there was a season of him being present in the world not quite knowing. That there was a season in which everything was shifting and the world was just beginning to understand that. The world the gospels themselves in are set in is one in which the tribes of Israel are no longer ruling themselves. They've been conquered over and over and over again. They've been ruled by the Babylonians and the Persians and now the Romans. This ruling for them is not pleasant. They're living in a state of occupation and exile, of slavery and heavy taxation. Herod is king. We hear about Herod in scripture today Herod is the appointed ruler by the Roman Senate 
under the sponsorship of Mark Antony. He's commonly known as the king of the Jews, as those are the people who he rules over, though he himself is not one of them. While he rules this area and he rules the Jews, he certainly doesn't have a like for them and they don't have a liking for him. He's an unpopular ruler, known for his cruelty and his harshness. His rule was one filled with riots and it took Roman militia nearly three years to get some of those riots under control following Herod's ascension to power. As a ruler, there's nothing Herod loves more than the empire of Rome, than power and arguably himself. He builds massive monuments and lavish temples in honor of Rome he taxes his Jewish subjects to pay to fund projects that will never benefit them. And if anything, ignore the culture of the people he's living in. Under his rule, the region becomes lavish and prosperous, and it's at the expense of those who are native to the area. Jews suffer from overcrowding and famine and poverty from overplanting and disease. Herod is a biblical gentrification agent. The empire flourishes for Herod and other aristocrats. Those who make up the smallest portion of the population. They consume the majority of resources, leaving everyone else in the dust. This, friends, is important to know. It's not very cheery, but this is the world Jesus is born into. He's born a Jewish person to poor Jewish parents in a world that is not for them. From the beginning, even as a defenseless infant, we hear that those in power cease to end Christ's life. Because the power of hope and love and justice, even if they are at their smallest, those in the world will always be a threat to sin and injustice and oppression. Even if it's just a small sprout, an infant baby beginning to grow, it's fundamentally a threat to Herod's entire way of life. Herod's reputation for brutality was well known in antiquity. What we know about his life is that he's deeply paranoid, that neither his spouses nor his children could escape it. In fact, he put his own family to death more than once. Herod hears that a new king is to be born, but not just any new king, a new king of the Jews. And he becomes even more paranoid, terrified 
that this child will overthrow him, that this child will destroy his empire. And so he chooses death. Not knowing who this child could be, he chooses the death of many. He chooses genocide. And so an angel comes to Joseph and tells him, flee, go to Egypt. The very place where Israelites under the guidance of Moses lived in slavery and were liberated from becomes the place where Christ, Joseph and Mary will flee. A place of slavery and pain becomes a place of liberation. We often read this story and the legacy of Harris and think, I can't, Harris, Herod, and think, I can't imagine. I can't imagine being so cruel. I cannot imagine a leader being so desperate to maintain their power that they'll do just about anything to keep it. I can't imagine someone being so willing to slaughter innocent people. I can't imagine putting someone like that in charge of something, and the more we think about it, the more we realize, oh. History does this over and over again. People who don't mind harming innocent people, people who love themselves more than others, people who are sick on the love of power, people who are willing to slaughter other people's sons and daughters because there's just the presence of their bodies pose a perceived threat to the powers that be that's not foreign to history. While we may not participate in such outward genocide, while we may not issue decrees in the same word that Herod, Herod does, the truth is these things still happen, friends. The world as it is is one that has been and still is killing innocent sons of parents desperately trying to keep them safe. The world is one which is unkind, deeply unkind, to those who flee areas out of fear of persecution. The world is one where the privileged still rule where just a few people take up many, many resources, where we benefit from a system built on hurting others. Not a lot has changed and a lot has changed. It is here in Egypt where Mary and Joseph stay with an infant Jesus, with a child who could literally do nothing to Herod besides maybe spit up on him. It is here they hide 
for what we might like to think as a short time, but is probably years. Until Herod is dead. And then they can finally go home. Safety doesn't come to them quickly, friends. They spend years in this waiting period. Years away from their home, away from their family. A young Mary and Joseph. Away from everything they know. Raising a son they didn't expect to have. Hopefully still not in a stable. But the truth is we don't know. They're only able to feel some sense of safety when Herod is gone. Jesus' entrance in the world is one that is met with such great joy, friends. We see that in the scriptures. We see that his birth is one which is rejoiced between Mary and Elizabeth before he even comes into the world as they sing praises. We see that his birth is a miraculous one, causing Joseph to go against all social norms and choose to stay with this woman who is pregnant with child when they're unwed and who's claiming that this child is in fact not anybody's except God's. Christ, as he's just entered the world, is one who shepherds come to while they might be watching their flock, they are drawn like sheep to a new shepherd. Christ is one for whom these people on the margins, shepherds being people who have the reputation of being liars and degenerates and thieves, are brought into the fold. Their testimonies in court aren't admissible Many towns have ordinances against them being allowed. They're unwelcome in the temple because their work makes them fundamentally unclean. And yet, they come to bow before the Son of God. Magi, important men, choose to defy Herod in order to keep this child king alive. An infant child serves no threat to Herod, and yet an infant child serves the greatest threat to Herod. Because just the beginning of his presence of the world has, begin, has begun to turn the wheels. The cogs have started moving, and the world is beginning to turn upside down, friends. Jesus' welcome into the world is met by Herod with fear, and truthfully, rightfully so. Herod is paranoid and afraid, and he should be, because this child who has come into the world that he is afraid will rob him of his kingdom and his power would do so. But he does it in a way that Herod never saw coming. Truthfully, if he'd lived, he would have continued to rejoice in the fact that this child is in fact put to death. That while he's named king of the Jews, it only happens when he hangs on a cross. 
And then Herod would find that even that doesn't stick. That there's no stopping or slowing this down. That hope and goodness and God, God's self, have entered the world. And Herod should be afraid. Because everything he has built will come to an end. His fear is felt. This child is a threat. And this child is only a threat if you're thinking like Herod. He's a threat to systems that are unfair. He's a threat to a world that benefits from the exploitation of others. He's a threat to a world that doesn't understand goodness and mercy and justice. He brings with him light that cannot be put out. This, friends, is the joy of the season we are sitting in. And so over these next five days of Christmas, I want to invite you to lean into that joy. Into the joy of knowing that even if he's in the world in what is seemingly the most small and insignificant ways, the cogs and the wheels are still turning. That Christ brings with him a completely different way of life. And from the moment he entered the world, that has been at work. And so as we look around in a world that isn't great, and hopefully, hopefully will be better than it has been, no matter how small Christ seems in it, he still is working. And his presence changes everything. Thanks be to God. This time, friends, I'd like to invite you to join me for our communion liturgy, which is found in your hymnal on page 12. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sins before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news, friends. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen.